Hey there. Thanks for checking out this episode of H&M Live. Your support is always greatly appreciated as I'm always striving to provide content that enlightens, entertains, and educates. Look, I've just enabled supporter functionality on the podcast, so click the link in the show description and any support that you provide will be greatly appreciated. Be well. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Perspective in Focus. I'm your host, James Hicks from Hicks New Media. And today we have a fantastic show and episode for you. Uh, today, we're, we're going to focus on investment practices, uh, rules and regulations for companies in the OTC markets, and some general best practices for investors, regardless of your experience trading and investing. That being said, my guest today is Gus Pazanante, who is a lawyer with Basile Law Firm, where he represents small cap companies in complex corporate finance litigation matters. I have a handful of questions that I'd like us to dive deep into, but if you have something that fits our topic today of debt remediation solutions for small and micro cap companies, do feel free to ask. As an opening disclaimer, though, I must state that my guests cannot discuss anything about any of the cases he is working on or provide any information regarding any of his clients. With all of that administrative stuff out of, out of the way, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Gus to the stream. Sir, how are you? <laughs> hey, James, what's going on? Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Listen, you know, a- after getting the legalities out of the way and, and making sure that folks are attentive to the requirements. I know it's going to be a, a phenomenal conversation and good discussion, but let me, let me pause and rewind a little bit. Tell folks, if you could tell folks who you are and what it is that you do at, at your, at your firm as well. Yeah. Um, so I am a uh, litigation attorney here at my firm, so the CEO law firm. Uh, we're uh, based out of New York. We have a couple of offices around the country. We have one in Dallas, one in uh, Naples, Florida, um, the main focus of our practice is, uh, this kind of niche area of broker dealer registration litigation. It's kind of, a a mouthful, but, um, we kind of broke into this field after, uh, a lot of, uh, SEC enforcement actions, uh, started taking place, kind of changing the way that the dealer, the definition of a dealer has been interpreted. Um, and we're, and when the SEC kind of started 
uh, their enforcement actions, that's when we realize that there's a serious problem. Uh, aside from the fact that our managing partner has managed has taken, I think, three companies public. So he has a lot of uh, public company uh, experience with public companies, um, all of them being traded on the OTC markets. So especially, you know, a substantial amount of experience on the OTC markets. Um, the reason that's relevant, uh, we'll get into this more, James, of course, but it's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of dirty money down uh, on the OTC markets. It's really, uh, it's hard to sift through a lot of financing. It's hard to raise capital at that stage of a company and for any company, um, but especially for those uh, trade on the OTC markets. Uh, so we kind of really found our area. We're one of the only firms in the country that are really uh, pressing this issue, going up against, you know, multinational, you know, international law firms with thousands of lawyers. And we have this boutique practice with a, uh, strong team, really, really strong team. And we've been taking the issues head on and, uh, we've been, uh, we've been pretty successful. You've been so, winning, you know, go, go ahead. Don't be humble. Go ahead and say it. You're right. <laughs> I, I got yeah. some winners here with you. So yeah, yeah Gus is a winner and, yeah. and, and definitely can represent well. Let, let me, yeah. let, let me pause and, and go back into some of the, actually, cool- hold on just oh. one second, James, speaking of winning, we did actually last month, uh, oh, in December, we got, no, since you want to be able to brag a little bit, we did get the first decision in the history of this country um, uh, on behalf of a private issuer that successfully stated a claim uh, under Section 29B of the Exchange Act, uh, basically with the predicate violation being uh, the 15A violation, which is a dealer registration violation. We'll get into all that, but we were the, you know, we really got, we got the first decision in the country uh, on behalf of a private issuer, something only the SEC's prosecuted before. And we successfully stated a claim. Uh, it's the first one we're, planning on a bunch more. Uh, the SEC is getting a lot of favorable decisions. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we, we've definitely been, uh, been for sure the leading firm uh, in the country doing what we do. That's a big deal, man. That's a big deal. Congratulations to, to you, your firm and everyone that's involved in that. Again, th- those, those things need to be celebrated. And, and then he, they, they set context and let folks again, understand who it is that we're dealing with and who you're talking with today. So again, folks, you see the scroll up there. If you got a question, put a cue in it so I can bring it up to, to Gus. But let, let me go into kind of the, the core focuses of, of your firm. And let's let's start with the concept of toxic lenders and financing. And if you can explain a little bit about about what that is and what that means. Yeah. Um, so in addition to our litigation practice, we also have this restructuring practice, which will make sense eventually. Uh, tonight. There's, there's a lot to unpack and lots to unravel, but we'll get there. Um, but so the toxic debt or toxic lending, toxic financing, um, kind of in some, it's a, it's a loan. It's a convertible note. It's called a convertible note where a hedge fund, a sketchy hedge fund, usually somebody that's running it out of somebody's basement somewhere and yeah. with, you know, Crazy. A recluse doesn't have any online presence, but somehow has a whole bunch of securities, but neither here nor there. But um, they, uh, they'll, acquire, they'll purchase a note, uh, you know, a loan, they'll lend money to a company, a public issuer. And the way that that loan gets paid back is it could be paid back with cash, but the terms are usually so offensive that nobody in their right mind would ever pay it back in cash because they have penalties, prepayment penalties, um, exuberant default penalties. Uh, you can default basically if you look the wrong way. Um, you 
there's essentially no chance of repaying that money with cash. On top of that, a lot of these OTC companies don't really have that kind of cash on hand. Mm. And these lenders know that. So they'll lend money and they'll have, they'll lend money and then uh, get repaid with stock. The stock they get is newly issued stock, right? So every time they get that stock, we're diluting everybody else. Obviously the, the pie gets cut into smaller pieces. You're not adding to the pie. You're just cutting it into smaller pieces. Right. Obviously, it affects shareholders for obvious reasons. Um, affects companies because it then becomes really difficult to obtain capital. Once your cap table is all blown out, you have 500 million shares issued now standing or some kind of ridiculous number. Traditional banks are not going to approach you with, the, the, with that kind of cap structure because they know that um, that there's has been already been significant dilution and it's extremely difficult to maintain uh, any kind of market conf- confidence with, with that, uh, with that kind of cap table. Mm. That said, right. So they get into these convertible financing agreements, which we can get more into detail uh, later if anybody cares or if you want to know about it, but that's essentially it, right? They pay, pay back these loans with stock of the company, but newly issued stock, which is important because of the dilution, the, the dilutive nature of it. What we do is we'll litigate against those funds, those hedge funds or those VC firms or whatever they want to call themselves running out of somebody's house in the middle of somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And um, we'd represent the issuer that take that took on that that debt, and either we'd commence the action and say we're going to rescind these notes. Um, and generally, oh, and sorry, the most offensive aspect of this entire convertible note I almost forgot to mention is the conversion discount. So they'll convert at let's say a fifty percent discount to market, right? So when they convert hundred thousand dollars worth of debt they're getting $200,000 worth of stock, let's say, if they had a 50% conversion discount. Every single time. Wow. There's a ton of other variables and other market pressures that they could, um, that basically the way that they can kind of influence the market to obtain even more stock, uh, whether it be by shorting or uh most usually by shorting, right? Because then the lower the stock would be, the better discount they'd get and the more stock that they would eventually get. Right. Um, then they could also apply pressure in the inverse of that and put a lot of buy orders in at the, at the end of it after they converted way more stock than they should have. And now they're selling at three or four or five times what they converted at. So there's a lot uh, a lot to unpack with, with these kinds of agreements. They're very complicated. And... Um, so we will, like I said, represent the issuer whether they whether we commence the action or we uh, we take a defensive posture and our client gets sued by one of these lenders in court. Um, regardless, it's essentially the same arguments that we're bringing up. Um, you're acting as a securities dealer. A securities dealer is somebody who engages in the business of buying and selling securities. This fund is engaging in the business of buying and selling securities. Uh, this isn't an isolated transaction. There's this is their business model. They buy these notes, they convert, then they sell. They buy, convert, sell, convert, sell, convert, sell, convert, sell, convert, sell. All of that market pressure on a single stock that probably doesn't have any significant volume because this is an OTC stock. This isn't mm. Apple. Mm-hmm. This isn't Tesla. This is not a, a, something that's traded on the national exchange, on the NASDAQ or the NYSE. They don't have the kind of volume to sustain that kind of market pressure. So the more conversions that they do, inevitably, their stock price just sinks. One, because they're diluting at, a, at an exponential rate, 
because they're issuing millions and millions and millions of shares every conversion. The company is the issue. The, the company is issuing those shares that is right. And then they're selling immediately and then they do it again and then they do it again and then they do it again until their debt is completely satisfied. Okay. This tanks their share price. Not only does it tank their share price, it will inevitably, inevitably leave them with, uh, Half a billion shares issued now standing. Like I said before, nobody's touching that. Nobody, no, no clean money is touching yeah, that. Yeah. Right. Um, so that said, sometimes when our clients do end up with a blown out cap table, we will, uh, we also do restructurings in house, right? So that restructuring would entail, uh, remediating whatever debt that is, making sure the company can get a uh, solid valuation. Um, that solid valuation will result in clean capital. That clean capital will result in hopefully increased revenues, whether it be an acquisition target that the executives really had their eye on that they know has a positive EBITDA, um, whether it be just reinvesting into the company internally, um, uh, purchasing IP, whatever, whatever that company and right. whatever that company, whatever that industry, the industry that that company's in. Um, so the restructuring portion of our business is kind of like the tail end, right? We litigate or don't litigate. We try and remediate sometimes in the restructurings and try and settle and try and either reclassify the debt. Um, Cause remember this is debt still, right? So all these convertible nodes, even though they're kind of, a, it's, it's a security, they're still debt on their books. So obviously hurts their valuations, mm-hmm. let alone all the other negative impacts that these convertible nodes have on these companies. So in the restructuring process, we'll remediate all of that debt, uh, ensure that we get all of the debt off the books. So yeah. um, usually we'll do it in a series of preferred shares uh, with some kind of redemption, right? Or however we may do it, or if we just settle with cash, if the company has cash on them and they're able to, you know, if they can put themselves in that position. Um, and the end goal is just to increase shareholder value, right? Like we want organic growth of this company. Of course, like everyone wants that. The executives want that. We as their attorneys want that. Um, their shareholders want that, obviously. Um, and it's just, it, it becomes so out of reach sometimes, like the, this orga- organic growth that every company is thriving for and, and striving for uh, becomes so out of reach at certain points, especially with, like like I said, with that blown out cap table and uh, significant debt on the books um, and the potential for even more dilution, depending on what kind of provisions are in those notes which will sometimes uh, include other warrants or other other option contracts that would, you know, have even worse effects. And, and so, companies at the, at the micro cap and the small cap level, I mean, it's just more magnified as well, right? As opposed oh, to, you, you mentioned some of the other companies that, that folks are talking about. Let, let, let me ask you about the client, and I, I put that in air quotes, that, that you focus on. Now, is it again, always the company or is it also the individual possible individual investor as well? Or is it just the organization? So we generally don't represent individual investors. We have, uh, we have put out feelers before. Um, we've tried to market it a little bit. Um, also just to keep in mind, the litigation on behalf of a shareholder would be a little bit different than, um, than the position that an issuer would have, obviously. Um, right, the issuer would be rescinding as a party to that contract, would be seeking to rescind that contract. A shareholder would have other claims, could potentially have claims against the fund, could even another thing that's kind of recent um, that we've been exploring. Shareholders, truthfully, we're, I think we're getting to the, the day and age where it's almost inevitable that 
these lenders are going to go down. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And at this point, if there are CEOs that are still taking out loans from these unregistered dealers, knowing that they're illegal, I think that there's a serious question to be answered as to whether that company's CEO is even breaching a fiduciary duty, right? And and I'm not sure, just for context, um, all executives and uh, board members owe fiduciary duty to the to their shareholders in the company, obviously, right? They have to always act in the best interest of that company, always act in the best interest of those shareholders. And we see sometimes these, you know, these CEOs, right? And granted, sometimes they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's either shut these lights, you know, the lights get turned off tomorrow or they sign this deal and they get financing. They can live to see another day. It's tough. It's a tough decision. Um, but I think it's a serious, I think that that might be something that we could potentially see in the future. I'm not saying that we're necessarily going to definitely be in, you know, taking that stance and deciding, um, and, and be taking on different clients because grant, you know, we're, we're really building up our practice and really being successful, uh, arguing on behalf of issuers, but I could certainly see in the future, uh, potential claims against CEOs and board members, uh, just for engaging in agreements alone, just because of how much overwhelming evidence it is at this point. We know who a dealer is. Courts are courts are saying we know who dealers are, and if you do this, you're a dealer. And for a CEO to, in their right mind, say, "Hey, you're a dealer. Uh, I'm gonna and you're and we know you're not registered. It's easy broker check. You check right on Senra. Google be, their name. Be some problems, name. though, right? <laughs> and and you're gonna go and engage in this kind of transaction when you know that they're going to potentially sink your share price to who knows what you know sub penny a lot of times. And in, in, in addition to that, they're going to dilute your shareholders like crazy. Uh, like just for example, I've seen before, I've seen this before and obviously I'm not going to say any companies, but I've seen this before. I've seen companies three years ago or four years ago have 80 million shares that's issued outstanding just for perspective. That's still kind of a lot. That's still, a, it still isn't really great. You really want to be in the 20 to 40 million range when you're raising money, when you're raising capital um, to be safe, because you want to obviously prepare for potential future dilution when you're raising capital. Um, And obviously the people invest, you know, the the potential investors are looking at the future of this company, right? So I've seen a company go from 80 million shares outstanding and in five years or less than five years, four years, I think three, four years, five years, whatever, go to 5 billion shares issued outstanding. And if you think it's bad to try and get funding, try and raise capital with 500 million or 80 million or 90 million shares issued outstanding, it is almost impossible to get money from anybody but a toxic lender at that point with 5 billion, you know, four or 5 billion shares issued outstanding. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate uh, to see to see those kinds of things happening because, like I said, it really just the, the company will never have a chance at that point. Yeah. You know, um, unless you restructure. Yeah, at that point, you absolutely need to restructure. You have to restructure. Yeah. We'll never get fun, clean funding with that kind of cap table ever. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna speak for everyone here listening now and even on the replay. Man, we appreciate you standing in the gap, <laughs> right? And, and 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 kind of watching our six there. Got got some fantastic questions coming in from from the audience. And we'll put this one on screen right now and. Um, Brian is asking if a toxic lender has already converted ill-gotten shares, what is the recourse for issuers? 
right? If they win litigation, will they receive a monetary award? Will toxic lender be forced to buy back? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and let's say so. Also, we have to we have to assume a few things here for me to properly answer this question. We're going to assume, let's say, the toxic lender is fully converted out of that note um, because if they haven't fully converted, the it gets a little more complicated because there's some equitable justifications that you need to consider when determining like what the remedy would be. And it's a little bit unclear. It could get, you know, at that point, um, it would be a little bit unclear and it'd really be rolling the dice. Um, so let's assume that they're fully converted out. Let's say they acquired 10 million shares wrongfully. Those 10 million shares that they acquired are worth $20 million. Um, the loan was for a hundred thousand dollars. Just for also more perspective, that's not uncommon. It's wow. very often where you will see these lenders invest a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand dollars, and walk away with twenty, thirty, forty million dollars. And it is that—that's how repulsive and offensive these agreements really are. So what what we do, what we uh, what we will assert on behalf of an issuer is say, hey, give us all that stock back that you rec- that you took wrongfully. Or we'll request the value, the market value of all those shares as of the day of the conversion. The pr- obvious issue with requesting the shares back is they're probably sold. So they can't give us the shares back because they no longer possess them. Um, so that being said, we would seek damages in the amount of the market value of the shares that they wrongfully acquired, right? Wrongfully acquired, we'd also presume that's everything beyond the principal. So let's say... They invested hundred thousand dollars. They got twenty million, nineteen million nine hundred thousand dollars. We should be seeking back, right? And um, then hopefully that would put the so that's one set of damages. There's other damages that you could potentially allege too. Um, like let's say the company was trying to get fine. If if you could relate damage to a to some of the harm that these lenders cause, you could also tack on additional damages. Um, for example, if they made like a, uh, one of their con, like, you know, they, they forced them to lose a contract, let's say a government contract. It's uh, some kind of company that um, makes all of their money off of government contracts. Yeah. Let's say they cause them to lose a government contract. There might be even room for damages there, right? If you can assert with that, that the harm caused by the lender was within the proximate cause of um those those actions, the wrongdoing. Um, so there could be even more on the table, but but generally speaking, you know, we ask for the shares back. And the alternative, give us the value of the shares. Got you. So man, yeah. listen, my, my community will ask you the hard questions, man. My, my folks come and oh, we're not messing around, right? We'll we'll, <laughs> we'll we'll make you pull out the manual. We'll make you pull out all all of the um, you know past readings and everything like that nature. So let, let me pull another one up, and then we'll continue on kind of with the, the regular yeah, line of questions. For sure. Penny, for your thoughts, if two or more toxic lenders pool their money for a loan, but the note is only registered under one of the lenders' names, could all the lenders who funded the loan be pulled into the action? And that's a good question. That is a good question, yeah. Um, so what you'll see a lot of times, just for a little background on this, um, is these lenders, they understand that it's right there. So you're in the business of buying and selling securities. Um, the person, a person defined under the act could be a, an entity as well as like an individual, right? So 
just like in most aspects of the law, a person could be a legal entity, right? Or a, a, a corporate entity. So what they'll do is they'll set up a fund, do one note, they'll buy one note, and then they'll set up another fund. And they'll usually call that one, uh, let's say fund one, and then they'll call the second one fund two. So they make it real hard for us too, right? So to, to figure out what they're doing. <laughs> so then they'll make fund two and then do another note with another company. And then what comes after fund two, fund three will come along. And we've seen this before um, where they've actually accidentally sent uh, what, what they, cause when they convert the debt, they, what they do is they send a conversion notice, right? The conversion notice will describe the amount of shares that they're requesting, the amount of debt that they're converting. Uh, sometimes it'll distinguish between principal and interest, but not always. Um, and it'll also provide the formula that they're converting at, which is why they're entitled to those shares. And then any exhibit, if it's necessary for the transfer agent to, uh, to process that conversion. Um, some transfer agents just require certain things and others don't. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me. So, uh, we've seen before, um, them accidentally. So let's say a, a fund, uh, you know, fund one has a note and we've seen a conversion notice sent through for fund two. And we've seen the transfer agent not even realize it was fund two. And then, you know, send the shares over to fund two's account because it, because it's that incestuous, like, because realistically think about it this way. Also remember that the transfer agent, the person that the fund is requesting this transfer from, it's an, it's a person, right? Let's say it's Bob at transfer, you know, transfer agent Inc. Yeah. And then there's fund one, it's Mike, right? Mike is the, Mike runs fund one, two, three, all the way up to 75, right? Mike runs all the funds. So, so Bob doesn't care, doesn't real, doesn't notice that Mike is sending for fund one or fund seven or fund 18. He sees Mike sending conversion notice under the note with this company. Um, so the recourse for that, generally what we do is we also, um, bring in, uh, well, I mean, I guess not in this context, but what we'll do is, uh, for, so there's something called control person liability underneath the act. Right. And so what we'll do is we'll try and hold the person who's running the fund personally liable because if they're, if the fund that is acting unlawfully, right? Violating the act, violating the exchange act is uh, under the direction or control of an individual. You can actually hold that individual liable for whatever violations the, that act, you know, the, the bad actor is engaging in. Right. So in the, in the event where there's multiple fun, uh, funds, like pulling from it truthfully for like rem- remedial purposes, like the remedy that we're going to get, we're going to, you know, we're seeking money from the entity and then from the person themselves. Um, so realistically it wouldn't, it wouldn't really matter if we pulled in another entity, at least for 15, a violation purposes. Granted, we have had some internal discussions of bringing in potential other, uh, claims that could tie everybody in the loop that we haven't done yet. So I don't really want to talk about. Um, but that's like super, super enticing because they can give you, uh, error intriguing because of the, the damage, there's actually a damage multiplier under the claim that we're talking about. Um, because of like the organized nature of the violations. Um, and I'll kind of let your imagination go to, you know, think about whatever that might be. But, um, if we end up being successful in one of these claims, it would be, uh, then in that event, then we might tie in everybody, right? We'll f- tie in fund one through 15, whatever gotcha. they do, right? You know, because 
uh, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's really ridiculous the way that they do it, honestly. And you'd almost be like, no, you can't be like doing it. Can't They're not really, really that, are they? like, really, you're really just going to make it fun too. You know, like you really just add a two onto it. Like, <laughs> and that's really what they do. Um, and like I said, for remedial purposes under like the broker dealer violations, would it help not help? maybe to show that they're really in the business of it. Right. And the, and the control person is, is really like the, you know, the mastermind behind the operations. Um, but most of the time, one of the entities has enough transactions that we can assert the claim against them. And we feel we could be successful. Um, but like I said, we have this other claim that we're kind of brewing and we really think might, uh, might combat, you know, every single fund, um, well, which I'll, would be I'll, really interesting. I'll definitely tweet about it when it happens. <laughs> I, I could tell you wanted to stay kind of at that 30,000 foot level because you, you were mentioning, you know, Sam and Dave and Bill or, and whoever, but you, you got the real names of some things that you're right in the middle of. So <laughs> we'll, we'll continue to deride the disclaimer that I, that I left yeah. at the beginning of this session, but, but appreciate you going into that, man. Um, you, you touched on briefly uh, in, in that dialogue about section, I mean, I mean, SEC rule 15. And, and I know we said we were only going to touch on that just a little bit, but since it was part of that dialogue, just, just kind of give kind of some, some, some high level uh, insight in terms of what SEC rule 15 C is. And, and just, just for folks again at this level for, for this audience, and then I'll get back to some of the questions. Yeah. Um, so 15 C really, um, the way I like to put it is that it, it kind of furthered the whole purpose of the Exchange Act, right? The purpose of the Exchange Act was to inhibit um, transparency with the markets and investors, um, really incentive, not incentivize, you know, to enforce disclosures, certain disclosures to be made because you are dealing with the investing public. You're dealing with retail investors. You're not dealing with experts. Um, and it's really there to, to promote fairness and, and, uh, and promote disclosure and promote transparency, like I was saying. So, in you know, in the 30,000 foot view, that's what it does. It requires certain actions to be taken and for certain companies become current reporting. Basically, if they don't become current, they might get kicked off of, uh, they might stop being publicly quoted and then they'll get pushed down to a gray market or an expert market where only it's very, it's very limited to who can trade on that market. Like retail investors aren't allowed to trade in that market. Um, for example, but that's essentially what it does. I can go more into it, but it's not as exciting as all the bad stuff that the toxic lenders do. So I'd much yeah, rather we, we want to have the, we, we want to get into it, man. We want to get into it. And, and, and Mr. Walton is coming with some, some serious hard hitting questions. I'm going to see if I can make you sweat a little bit again with, with this next question that he's got. He says, uh, with repeat offenders, Example, GPL against multiple issues. Is there a race to the courthouse situation where the toxic lender may be out of funds and resources for an issuer to collect judgment? That's a great question. Um, I wish I had the answer for you. <laughs> that is, uh, I mean, it's it's a possibility, which is why we uh, we would take the position like, you know, Let's let's go now and let's not wait to find out what happens when they run out of money, right? Um, you know, who are they going to try and li- try and find liable? Whose bank accounts are they going to try and track down overseas or wherever they might be? Um, so why why not now, right? I mean, mm. you know, we're getting it's it's a snowball effect. I mean, that GPL case, that decision came down very recently. The motion is best got denied. That's like the fourth or fifth one uh, within the last year. Uh, so it's it's very clear that they're not winning. 
you know, these lenders are not going to win for much longer. So that's why we kind of taken the position like, you know, I, I, and I would assume that they get the drift too, that they don't have much time left. So what are they going to do, right? They're going to try and figure out what to do with all of uh, their ill-gotten gains while they still have them. Um, that's just an assumption, you know, that's just a guess, but there's probably, uh, we're, we're, you know, there's, we'll take it, you know, yeah. we will we'll take, well, I'll say figuratively, we'll take it to the bank, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. take it as the subject matter <laughs> expertise. Uh, one more question in the queue and then we'll, we'll go down again. Uh, with the landmark decision in December, do you anticipate issuer claims against toxic lenders to be decided more quickly? If so, how quickly can resolution occur? That's a good question. Um, so for the first question, do I anticipate they'll be decided more quickly? Um, I would hope so. I would really hope so because the issue seems to be pretty clear at this point. Uh, but I'm just not really sure how judges are going to approach this because um, the one thing you never want as a judge is to get overturned. So I think that's why there was a little bit of hesitancy uh, as in the last couple of months. There's been a few really, really favorable decisions for us in our practice area. Um but like I said, you know, judges don't ever want to get overturned. So maybe they're being hesitant. Maybe maybe they've crossed that, you know, they've hit that tipping point. They're just going to say, oh, this is it. It's clear. It's really nothing, nothing to decide here. But we're still getting 25-page opinions. Um, when you're getting a 25-page opinion, like, the judge has something to say. Uh, so it's it might, you know, when and when they're not, not to say that judges just love hearing themselves talk, but um, don't get yourself but, you in know, trouble here, man. You know, we, we not, I'm not here to. <laughs> if they're writing that, you know, that much, they're probably writing that much for a reason. And uh, they probably need to analyze and have a discussion as to the legal issues and the facts in that case, um, which might lead someone to believe that it might be less clear. So, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? And I'm sorry, James, can you pull that back up? I forgot what the second question was already. Yeah, no, no worries, man. No worries. Let me let me go back here. I know there was two though, so I'm gonna give myself credit for that. <laughs> uh, toxic lender. Uh, here we go. It's landmark decision. You seem to anticipate issuer claims against toxic lenders to be decided more quickly. If so, how quickly can resolution occur? So, how quickly? Um, basic stages of litigation. Somebody files a complaint. Somebody answers that claim. Uh, complaint with an answer, um, admitting or denying what happened, or they meet the complaint with a motion to dismiss. Almost every single claim under the Exchange Act is going to get with, met with a motion to dismiss. Um, a lot of them get denied, a significant portion, especially like securities fraud, market manipulation, those 10B5, Section 10B claims. I want to say that there's a stat out there that says uh, you know between 70 and 80% get dismissed. Wow. It's very, very difficult to, to sustain one of those causes of action. Um, in our cases, we've been pretty successful everywhere, pretty much besides uh, the Southern District in New York. But even the Southern District of New York is coming around now, right, with that new GPL decision that just came out. Um, so hopefully they can kind of get on the bandwagon. Uh, generally, litigation, I think, is sparked from a lack of clarity, right? So I think, the mm-hmm. you know, we're still kind of in the early developing stages of this area of law, I would say, even though we did really get a bunch of favorable favorable decisions, they weren't dispositive decisions. They were just denials of motions to dismiss. So that court was just saying, you can continue your action, right? We have a few dispositive decisions. The Alma Garvey case, I think Keener just came out with a dispositive decision. They just ruled on a summary judgment. So we have, I think those two are uh, really the only things I can think of, right? So those are dispositive, and by dispositive means the case is over. 
case is done right here. They figured out the judgment is in whoever's favor, and now we're going to figure out damages um, and the amounts that everyone's owed. Um, so I th- like I said before, I think litigation is uh, – it, it sparks from lack of clarity. The more clear this becomes, I think the quicker these matters will get resolved. How quick? Um, I mean, it's it's just so – it's such a wide range in my experience of what's gone on, right? Uh, so we have built up a reputation. So there's been times that we've gotten retained and the lender just says, Help, okay, never mind. You know, we don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And then they just handed it. They've literally just given us everything that we've asked for. There are other times that, you know, we get met with the most resistance uh, from a firm with 3,000 lawyers throughout the world um, against little old us, right? And and we hold our own, you know, because we're, 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 you know, we're, we have the law on our side. We have the facts on our side. And, um, and then we're going to stick to it. And we're passionate about what we do. And we're not going to, you know, we're not going to just back down because you guys have, uh, more important names on the door or uh, more, you know, way more resources than us and our clients might have. Um, you know, we know what's on our side. And um, so, like I said, I, I guess the, be- the best answer, like there's really no, no saying how quickly these things can get resolved. But I, what I can be pretty confident in saying is that the more clear that this area of law becomes, I think we're going to see a trend of these things being resolved, uh, you know, quicker. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I, I put up the uh, Basile Law Firm website just as you were talking. And, and coincidentally, as, during the slideshow, you you popped up on the screen as, as you were talking about just to show some more context and say, this is the man that we're, we're dealing with right there. Look at this guy right here in right. the New York office. Um, I got another question in, in the queue here from the audience, but I, I, I guess I, I want to pivot just a little bit and get a little bit deeper about actions right like actions from uh from a ceo for some of these companies and in this world that we live in of technology in this world of social media can I talk, talk to us a little bit about best practices do's and don'ts for executives in the small and micro cap space when it comes to utilizing social media i mean put the phone down kind of thing. I mean, from, from your perspective, talk, talk to us a little bit about, again, about do's and don'ts again for yeah. executives and social media. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not going to be giving any advice here, but <laughs> I'll give the but... advice. You, you give the guidance. I'll tell you what, I'll give you, we'll, we'll split but, it up that way. But, uh, but yeah, for sure. Um, it is kind of a, I guess like a kind of weird time that we're living in where, the, you know, these people could have influence over, uh, thousands and thousands of people uh, to do something. And just so happens all of those people have the ability to do exactly what that person is trying to influence them to do right from their cell phone. Right. So uh, the risk here is, is pretty, uh, I guess is pretty apparent, you know, or the potential risk. Um, but obviously there's reward and that's why it's so popular. And that's why these, uh, I guess that's, you know, that's why there's such a huge platform for the OTC markets on Twitter and, and Reddit and all these, uh, all these social media websites. Um, that being said, I think, uh, I think, uh, how can I phrase this? It's, um, you know, I'm, so I guess it, I guess really this all comes down to optics, right? Um, you know, you want a good PR team, uh, because like, I mean, it's always been influence that, you know, it's always been public influence that will 
decide, uh, you know, have, that's influenced people who are trading, especially retail investors, whether it be an article in a newspaper or a tweet. So really, what's the difference? The speed, I guess, right? And maybe the volume of people that you could reach. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, if I was a CEO, I don't know if I would be tweeting some of the, some things. Um, but then again, maybe I would, right? Uh, because you you want a strong following and you want a, you want a strong support system. You want supportive shareholders. You want to instill confidence in your shareholders. And if you could do that by, you know, by making a PR that targets, um, the growth of your company and, you know, potential, let's say acquisition targets or, or just the next steps. Why wouldn't you take advantage of something like that? If you have the platform, why wouldn't you, uh, as long as you're making all the proper disclosures, obviously under, you know, exchange uh, under the exchange act, which I'm not entirely an expert on. Like, like I said, I'm a litigator. I'm not really an Exchange Act attorney. Um, but as long as you're taking all the proper protocols, then why not, right? Um, but I think that said, it's really important for people to actually understand. Let's go back to the cap table again, right? If you have 500 million shares issued not standing, and you know that this person has five convertible notes, or this company has five convertible notes, we all know what's happening to their cap table it's going to be blown out even more. Mm. It is extremely difficult to have any kind of organic or organic growth and uh, organic growth in shareholder value. When you have that many shares that should outstanding, it's very, very, very difficult, especially knowing the impending doom of other conversions that might take place. Right? So it's very, very difficult aside from doing uh, a targeted marketing campaign or really good PR, yeah. right? So you could kind of pump it a little bit by making a good PR, but at the end of the day, you're not really, you, it, it'd be very difficult for a company with that many shares to even increase growth, which is why we really push our restructuring so much on our clients, especially after they get, um, you know, abused by these toxic lenders and their cap tables are what they are, right? Because they have however much liabilities on the books from these convertible, uh, convertible loans. Their cap table is completely blown out of proportion. Nobody, no kind of traditional financing, like I said, is ever going to come near them, right? They're not going to be able to, to get a, get any private uh, private placements. Um, they're not going to be able to get traditional loans, most likely because their cap table is so blown out um, and because of all the convertible debt on their books. They probably have minimal assets because they're, they are a growth company, right? They're, they are traded on the OTC. How many, and what, are their, what could their assets potentially be? So they're not going to get a great valuation. And it's all of those factors combined leads back to the one thing. We have no cash in the piggy bank. We have no cash in the piggy bank. How are we going to grow? How are you, how can a company possibly grow with no cash? Right. It's an extremely difficult thing to do. So I think it, I think it is fair to say you could be skeptical of certain, uh, certain people tweeting certain things because just by looking at a 10 K or a 10 Q and, and understanding their cap structure, you'll know the potential a company might have to, mm-hmm. to increase its share price. It's extremely difficult to have any kind of organic growth, like I said, with the blown out cap table. So if somebody's tweeting all of these great things that are coming in the future, but you know that there's four convertible notes and, um, and you know, two of them aren't fully converted yet, and they have half a billion or a billion shares issued in outstanding, um, you know, how good could it really get? Again, it's a speculation, but it'd be really difficult to get to get really good. You know, it'd be really, really difficult to to exert and you know to to have any kind of organic organic growth. 
Leading back to that you, you know, a lot of times with instruction, right? The the human brain, we have to hear it three times before we, we turn it into a habit. You you've said the same thing probably five times different ways, but with the same in meaning. So hopefully yeah. it sticks and it resonates with, with everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I hope so. And I hope and, I'm, so. and I'm definitely sure that it that it is and that, that it has. Uh, Brian Walden is coming with some some bangers today, man. Folks, check out what this man is saying. Okay, is there an avenue for U.S. retail investors to trade expert market, becoming an accredited, an accredited investor? Canada allows all retail traders to buy and sell expert market. I'm not a, I'm not entirely positive, but I'm pretty sure only uh, only. Uh, I think it, I forgot what the term is. Uh, people who are allowed to trade in the expert markets, but basically professionals. So you need to, pro, you know, you need to probably have some kind of license with FINRA uh, and be a reg- be registered in some capacity as a broker or um, something to trade on those markets because they're not the, the difference between those markets. They're just not publicly quoted. They're quoted on uh, on the on that expert market. Um, so we just you just don't have access to it. You don't have access to the bids. You don't have access to um, placing an order uh, as as a retail investor. So uh, don't quote me on that, but I'm I'm pretty sure they're only available to experts. That's yes. what's you know. Hence the name expert markets. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. We we sparked some interest as we were talking about social media and and executives. So King of Prussia is asking, can you discuss what remedies companies have against the anonymous bashers on social, the people who lie about execs being cons or the company being a scam? interfering with business deals, et cetera. I mean, so that that's hitting home, right? That That's the question that yeah. a, a lot of the folks in this community, right, that they're listening and watching, you know, they're, they're, they're passionate and vested in a handful or number of organizations, but how, how do we steer from the noise, right? And, and, and are there yeah. consequences for the folks that are drumming up that noise, I guess? Yeah. So what, what comes to mind is, is two potential avenues. Um, I think I kind of touched on it before. There is the uh, the avenue of you know bringing a securities fraud, market manipulation, that 10B, 10B5 realm of a securities claim, the typical securities claim, right? Um, the one that is extremely hard to plead, extremely uh, you know extremely expensive to litigate. Um, most class class uh, class action lawsuits are brought under this section of the act and this section of the rules. So. Um, you could go that route. Like I said, ex- extremely difficult. Um, there's extremely high pleading requirements. If you're not pleading who, what, where, when, why, and how, um, you're getting thrown out of court. Um, so you need a real, real expensive investigation to go into it and super, super particular uh, allegations in the complaint. Um, pretty difficult. Uh Another avenue that I'm thinking of only because I'm doing this for a client right now um, is potentially uh, suing for, you know, if, if whatever this, this person or this, I guess, like account is saying is actually false, they're actually treating false information, provably false information. You'd also seek uh, seek recovery based on like a defamation aspect, right? Or slander. Okay. Okay. Um, That's something, you know, another avenue. Um, at the very least, you'd probably get them to stop saying it. Uh, how much damages could Good you associate? That one, right? that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how much, you know, how much money would a, would a party be able to recover through that Avenue? 
Uh, I'm not sure, honestly. Uh, it'd be, it, it, you know, it's a question of fact. You'd have to, like I you know, going back to before, it's pretty much all, you know, most of the time when you're suing somebody for something, you get back whatever harm that, you know, if whatever conduct that they did was wrong caused, you know, you know amount of harm they caused you based on that conduct, and you can relate that conduct just within what's called the proximate cause of that conduct, then you can assert damages for it, and you could probably get them as long as you prove those damages, right? How much damage did a company suffer from a tweet? It, there's probably a million variables that a court would consider uh, and realistically be um, either one, extremely expensive litigation, or two, settled before it really even got to answer that question. So uh, I think those are the two avenues. Which one's better? Really no saying. I think there's pros and cons to each. And... Um, and yeah, I think there's a, it's interesting. I mean, if you, if you follow me on Twitter, I, I'll, uh, I, I think I actually tweeted about the, the most recent action, um, uh, regarding the defamation stuff. Um, with, there's actually a, a cool, uh, an interesting mechanism that the state of New York has, uh, where you could actually petition a court to disclose the identity or well, you petition a court to have a social media platform disclose the identity of an account in order to bring an action against them. Okay. So we just did that. And that's really pretty interesting. It's the first time I ever did that. First time I actually even heard of it. Um, New press. And, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Well, not even press. It's actually a statute in, in New York. There's actually okay. a whole section dedicated to compelling disclosure of identity of the identity of people, which is really interesting. I think it's really innovative and uh, could definitely give, you know, another potential Avenue for issuers that are suffering from this. Maybe it could be something that other companies explore, um, like I said, especially if those, if those statements are actually provably fault or defamatory statements, then yeah, why not? You know, at the very least you'll get them to stop, I would imagine. Right. I mean, who wants to get sued? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the threat or the, you know, the potential of being sued, they, that, that can stop a lot of ill. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we, we are getting into it, man. I knew there's going to be some fantastic questions. I mean, so I've, I've got, two more questions that I had written down, but it's, it's okay. more important and it's more exciting and it's, and it's more, there's more value into having you dialogue with the community here. So I'm going to continue to bring these up and put you on the hot seat. Now, if, if you don't mind, I, I know what, what is it? It's no, seven thirty, almost eight o'clock your time, but it's all good. See. No, we're good. Appreciate Soon you'll it. probably see the, uh, the maintenance guys come in and change out my garbage. It's all good, brother. It's all good. So Quint is asking, uh, setting precedence is crucial and congratulate you and your firm seem to increase in companies reaching out. Uh, hold on. Let me see. Setting precedence is crucial and congratulate you and your peers on these initial victories. Has your firm seen an increase in companies reaching out? to you since these decisions have been made. I apologize for, for, for no. shattering that question there, but that's why it's on the screen right there. I, I'm, I trust it's only coffee in your folks. I haven't put any scotch in it just yet. <laughs> um, well, thanks for, uh, thanks for the congratulations. I appreciate that. Yeah. We're super proud of that decision here. Um, have we seen an increase in companies reaching out? Absolutely. Um, like I said, it is becoming more and more clear uh, as to who's a dealer and who isn't, it's it's only becoming clearer with the more these decisions come down, um, especially when, especially these lengthy decisions. Uh, judge writing, you know, dedicating fifteen pages of a twenty-five page decision to dealer activity, um, it says a lot because there 
they're setting a lot of groundwork for us to be successful in our claims. Um, especially because, you know, of course the lenders are, they fit the mold, you know, they fit yeah. the mold perfectly. This is exactly what they do. They're in the business of buying and selling securities. And they, you know, these, these judges will outline all of the factors necessary to prove who's a, who's a dealer and who isn't. And then, you know, after that, it's, it's more or less like, okay, let's go to court and figure this stuff out. Right. We still get met with resistance, like I said, because I guess you could say there's a little bit of lack of clarity, especially in, like I said, the Southern district. Um, and, but, but yeah, we've certainly seen an uptick in business and companies. Um, we are, we're expanding as a firm, uh, like substantially, substantially, I think in the last year we've tripled, um, our, you know, our employee, our attorneys, at least not necessarily employees, but our attorneys, um, so yeah, we're, we're definitely, uh, definitely growing and we're definitely getting, a a lot more inquiries as to the rights of these issuers. Um, and rightfully so, right. I mean, it's been how long that they've been getting abused by these companies. Right. And before this, it was convertible preferred shares with reset rights. And, and James, I mean, that, like, I, I think we were talking about this before, like how deep this goes. It is like, it's like a movie, man. Like you could really go yeah. super, super deep. Like they, it's, it's more than just what you see on the surface and what you see in filings. Um, you know, if, and, and trust me, once they stop, you know, once we stop them doing this, there's going to be a new thing that we're going to fight over, you know, Crazy. in a couple of years from now, they're going to re reword it and change the type of type of security, maybe may invent some new words and maybe do the same exact thing. You know, they never, they won't ever stop. They'll never, never stop. Never so. <laughs> a dull moment in, in, in yeah. your life and in your life. Let, let me ask you this. You talked about locations and, and where you're physically at. And I know you're physically in New York, but Dallas and mm-hmm. Naples, do you only concentrate in litigation activities within New York or, or are you, what, what's your, your, your reach, your geographic yeah. reach? Yeah. So we litigate all over the country. Um, mm-hmm. We have cases in probably like 10 or 12 states right now. Uh, so what we do is obviously like most of us are only admitted to practice in one or two states. Uh, and there's something called a pro hoc VJ admission. Pro hoc VJ is some Latin term. Um, I don't know exactly what it stands for, but it basically means we can practice for like this one case. Um, so what will happen is we'll find local counsel, uh, for example, in California or Florida who will sponsor us to handle litigation, right? So we'll have uh, an attorney of record there that's actually admitted in that court. And then we'll handle litigation out of New York. We call it the litigation hub. New York's the litigation hub. That's where all the litig- litigators are. Um, and then a few a few people that work remote. But New York is really the, it's where most of uh, most of litigation work takes place. Um, so most of us are admitted in New York. And, you know, we have some cases in New York, but, but we're absolutely all around the country. We're one of the only firms, I think I mentioned this earlier, we're one of the only firms in the country that do this. Um, so it's, uh, we have a pretty, pretty wide reach and we're not afraid to go learn the rules of what's, uh, you know, some weird stuff they do in California or, you know, weird stuff they do on the West coast. I know I'm not to, not to throw any shade, but That's all right, man. You know, <laughs> we, we need some straightening up once in a while over here on the West coast. So you come, come on over here and straighten us up. Um, man, the community is coming with some, with some hot, some hot stuff tonight. Let me, let me pull this up here. Sports car TV. So theoretically speaking, this is back to the social media concept. So theoretically speaking, if a person on social media caused harm, defamation, knowing spreading false info would a cease and desist on the spot be an avenue? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could you could try for it. Um, cease and desist. It wouldn't be necessarily a cease and desist. You'd probably you'd file for an injunction, some kind of temporary relief. Uh, and then obviously in hopes of getting a, a final 
order with an injunction halting them from, you know, speaking. Um, uh, but yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Immediate relief is almost, you know, almost always, uh, always an avenue, especially in, in these kinds of, in, in my field, right. Because there's so many times that where things happen overnight and just, you know, for example, uh, you know, a DWAP transfer takes three days, you know, to go right from shares from one account to another account usually takes around three days to clear. And we know an order's place in three days, we might have three days to follow a TRO. So, you know, when we get a call from our client saying, Hey, somebody put in an order for 50 million, you know, a sell order for 50 million shares, they're dumping. We know that, uh, you know, they're using the stock that they acquired under conversion. You know, we're here for those next three days for 72 hours until we get that TRO filed and, you know, we do whatever we can. So if there's, uh, you know, there's obviously factors in like legal, there's a legal analysis to the, to, as to whether, you know, that, that relief would be granted immediately or temporarily. Um, but yeah, that's certainly an avenue. I'm not really, like I said, that it's kind of, uh, it's, that was one of the first times, uh, I've filed, you know, dealing with this kind of, uh, litigation, um, but it's, it's absolutely an avenue. I'm not sure how, uh, you know, success rates or, or things like that, but generally if you could, if you can demonstrate some kind of like immediate harm, um, and, uh, and that harm is irreparable, like that harm can't be remedied by money, which a lot of times pe- people speaking can't, right? Because mm. if you think about it in terms of like, let's say market confidence, right? You're on Twitter and you tweet to 25,000 people saying, uh, you know, this guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, and there's something provably false in that statement. Um, another tweet could be like, you know, really damaging. So, and and that's not necessarily something you'd quantify with money, right? As opposed to stock that they're getting wrongfully. That's something you could quantify with money. So courts are more inclined to grant relief in those circumstances when there's, uh, there's harm being caused. that's not necessarily quantifiable by money. Um, and that harm is immediate. Um, but that was a good question. Yeah, that's absolutely something a company could explore. Awesome. Awesome. Let me ask this. And I wanted to kind of go in order in terms of when they, they came in here. Uh, Would your firm ever file an amicus brief on behalf of shareholders who are in support of a company's lawsuit against bad actors? Um. So that's a pretty broad question. So uh, just for, the, I guess, the audience, an amicus brief is a brief filed by like a non-party regarding a potential decision, right? So for example, James, let's say there is um, ABC Inc. Uh, versus some hedge fund, some sketchy hedge fund ran out of somebody's basement, right? They're always out of somebody's basement. Always, always, And for example, my firm would have an interest in this litigation, even though let's say we're not representing a party, of course, because this would only be um, in the event that we're not a non-party. Our firm would have an interest, an interest in this, and we could file an amicus brief kind of as a third party in support of either side, which you will often see if you, uh, so we uh, recently had a a really big uh, court of appeals decision in the state of New York. Uh, If you go on there, you'll notice some of the lenders filed amicus briefs uh, in opposition to our arguments ended up losing, of course, but they did file opposition amicus briefs just to, you know, you know, play right into the role that they play. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they filed these amicus briefs in support of their position in opposition to our position. Um, 
So would we ever file an amicus, amicus brief in that situation? That's, that's super broad. I mean, in, in the right situation, absolutely. We will file publicly, um, whatever. You know, we, we've, we've commented uh, publicly on the proposed Rule 144 change. Rule 144 is the, uh, it provides an exemption for certain unregistered securities um, through a holding period, which is essentially the, you know, when, it, when you get down to the roots, that's essentially the roots of this convertible death spiral toxic lending thing. Um, if this Rule 144 was amended, it would actually probably bring all of this to a screeching halt. No, well, not, not a screeching halt, but it would, it would really relieve a lot of harm that, that some of these lenders cause. Um, but yeah, we we're we're absolutely not afraid of, you know, publicly filing any, anything that would support our clients and, and the arguments that we, uh, you know, that we believe in. Awesome. Awesome. In the right circumstances, of course. Right. Right. Uh, two more questions. Right, because I, I want to be cognizant of your time, and I don't want the guy to come in there with the vacuum cleaner and, and throw you completely off off kilter. Right, so um, I appreciate you. <laughs> I hear him. <laughs> He's coming around the corner, and I appreciate you, Donald Oliver, uh, for telling me about my microphone. Keep me in check here. Make people don't want to hear me. It's all about Gus tonight. Right. But, but I'll turn my microphone up to, to be a little bit more clear in the microphone for sure. Uh, Will Gain has asked a question as well. He says, if I recall, WDLF was a leader in fighting the fight. Why are these cases taking so long? Yeah. So that's one I'm not going to be able to answer. So that's one of my clients. Okay. Um, can't talk about that. So no sorry. worries. No, no worries. Let me see if I can uh, recoup and ask this one. What originally initiated your efforts? Just as to, to help the OTC. Okay. Yeah. Let, let, let's, let's go ahead and make it personal a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We can make it personal. Absolutely. I, lo- I love that. You know, get to know me. Um, so the way this all happened was, uh, so I think I mentioned this before, the managing partner, Mark Basile, he, he ran a few public companies, um, super successful, uh, knows the OTC like the back of his hand, uh, like an amazing resource, uh, which is, you know, why we have so many, uh, like we have so many contacts in, in our field, especially, you know, whether with, with respect to litigation or, you know, raising capital, we have so many connections and that's why like our firm just has such an advantage over a lot of firms that offer the services or offer similar services that we offer is because of Mark's insight. Um, Mark and I went to the same law school uh, he ends up uh, teaching a class about entrepreneurship and business, you know, starting a business and things like that. Um, I go there. I'm obviously the smartest, funniest, and best-looking kid in the class, and so he grabbed me. Uh, <laughs> he, he scooped me up, um, and I've been with him ever since, pretty much. You know, it was pretty much right out of school. He took me under his wing, and uh, I learned a lot from him and, and everyone here. I'm not, you know, not just Mark. I mean, we have like a really incredible team here. Like not a single one of us are the same. Um, not, a, you know, none of us are the same at all. And we offer so many different perspectives into litigation and, and everything that we do, um, which is absolutely a huge factor in our success because of all the different perspectives that we all have to offer. You know, we have people that have worked in government for 30 years. We have people like Mark who um, has been everywhere on the, you know, on the OTC markets and, and dealt with exchange act filings. We have restructuring advisors that have been uh, executives for com- you know, public companies and know everything there is to know about corporate finance. Um, we have seasoned litigators that have worked for uh, other, you know, securities litigation firms. I and mean, we have pretty much everything. 
Um, and then there's me who just pretty much looks good and, you know, says some funny things here and there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. The guy heckling from the back of the room. Right. But, um, but yeah, it's, it, we, we do have a, a really good team. So when Mark took me in, um, we pretty much grabbed a, uh, you know, I, I, I bought in pretty quickly and been doing this pretty much ever since, uh, pretty much since, uh, since I started. Awesome. Somebody just asked you for hiring. Well, <laughs> Brian uh, Walden says he was also the, you know, the, the funniest, smartest, best looking guy in his law school class. So, you know what, Brian, Gus is going to give his website. I'm going to put it in the description. I've got his Twitter <laughs> handle right there in his lower third. And, and, and Gus is always very active on, on Twitter, sharing information and, and, and keeping us abreast of things in the, in the industry and in the market and from the litigation perspective. Um, where else can folks keep in touch with, you know, let, let me, let me pause. Let me, let me go back a little bit. Cause the question that I did want to ask was more from the investor's perspective and kind of to, to sum everything up kind of best practices, right. For the investor at any level, uh, from, from any level of expertise to be safe, be, to be cautious. You know, if you can give two or three maybe best practices again for, for, for the individual that are dealing with yeah. these small and micro cap types of organizations. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think relying on things that you can rely on is super important, right? So relying on a 10 K relying on a public, uh, you know, something like a required disclosure, like these company, you know, these companies, you have to understand these companies are required to disclose certain things. So if you look and they don't disclose it um, and you're hurt by their non-disclosure or their wrong disclosure, a material misrepresentation under one of their disclosures, um, then you'd be in a way better position in the event of litigation. Um, well, one, if it gets that far or two, I mean, just inform yourself, right? You know, look at these, look at their financials. They're audited for a reason. You can rely on those because an independent auditor comes in and audits those financials. Go take a look at how much cash they have in the bank. Look at what kind of convertible debt that they might have. You know, if they have convertible debt, that they're probably going to be, you know, diluted. Uh, uh, just off the top of my head, rule 144 last six months. So you hold for six months, you can almost guarantee that after six months and one day, that first conversion notice is coming out of somebody's basement, going straight to a transfer agent, and they're converting at a crazy discount, getting issued 10 million shares, diluting everyone else that much, right? Wow. And then they're going to do it again a couple of days later, as soon as those shares clear, and then a couple of days later again, again, and again, until their stock price, their own stock trading subpenny, and they have a blown out cap table. So... I think uh, it's super important just to you know, really pay attention to what you can rely on, what you can rely on are those disclosures. Gotcha. That was supposed to be the last question, but <laughs> it, it, it was. And then, then Quint comes over right out of left field with this haymaker. And look, I would be a poor host, poor moderator, poor whatever adjective you want to use. This is a good question, man. And I think, again, this resonates with the community and we'll – put a lot of a lot of questions probably to rest and we'll, we'll just just help with the discussion kind of putting a nice bow on it quint is asking so discussing the otc do you think it is important to uplist to nasdaq or others or do you think otc is a better place to operate than it is given credit for wow i'm glad that quint brought this up because i i almost forgot to <laughs> um uplisting should be a priority for 
almost everyone, um, every almost every company, right? You, you need to understand that. So the differences between these exchanges are disclosure disclosure requirements. Most mostly, obviously, there's listing requirements and some other ancillary things. But the biggest thing is like disclosure requirements. What are you required to disclose on the OTC pinks versus the OTC QB versus the a national exchange like the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange? Completely different. Um, in addition to that, uh, like I said, those uplist, uplisting requirements are... Uh, oh, I'm sure you hear the vacuum. Just hold on one second. Let me just hand this guy the garbage pail. Sorry about that. No but yeah, uplisting is is absolutely critical. That's when you're going to get looked at by by clean capital. Um, it's it's very difficult to get clean capital on the OTC markets for obvious reasons. And, and plus, a lot of those companies have uh, you know minimal assets, like we discussed, and it's it's super hard to get a really good valuation there, um, and to get clean capital without a good valuation. Uh, it's like I said, it's almost impossible. So uplisting should be a priority for, for most, you know, almost all of our companies, which is actually a priority in our restructuring plan, um, in, in all of our restructuring plans, right? So, you know, we spend a month doing due diligence, understanding your cap table, all your outstanding securities, what kind of warrants you have, what kind of convertible preferred shares you have, any convertible debt you might have, um, figure out what, you know, what your cap table might look like on a fully diluted basis, then we deal with it. Deal with your cap table in the second month. It's usually about around a three-month process. That second month, we're dealing with your cap table, cleaning it up, whether it's doing reverse splits. Um, reverse splits will increase the share price, which could meet certain listing requirements, right? Um, we're going to remediate the debt. We're going to get all the liabilities off your books. Those liabilities get off your books. Now your evaluation will soar because now instead of having liabilities, you replaced it with convertible preferred shares or some kind of some other kind of redeemable security, let's say, um, or, or really anything that would would remove the liability, right? Because that, that's what at the end of the day that they're looking at your books, right? It's bottom line: assets plus liabilities equal capital or equal equity, right? So then that second month comes around, we figure out what we're going to do. Third month we execute. Third month we're executing. We're giving, you know, drafting board resolutions, preferred, you know, series of preferred stock designations, handing them to the board for them to approve. And at that point, we're looking for capital. Now we have clean books. We have um, a reasonable cap table that an investor would want to work with or could work with. We have at that point also probably located at least a couple of acquisition targets that have a positive EBITDA. That positive EBITDA, once you acquire, is now revenue in your pocket every single month, right? So now you acquire uh, acquire a company that has positive revenues. Now you're making money. You're making money. You have a clean cap table. You have no liabilities on the books. You're uplisted. You're trading on the on the Nasdaq or the NYSE. Your stock just went from fourteen cents to five dollars and seventy five cents overnight, basically because of the reverse split. Because now you don't have five billion shares, right? I mean. You'd have a valuable company with five billion shares of shares, so right share price is still going to be five cents. Doesn't matter, right? You can't list on the NAS on the Nasdaq with a five cent share price. So those reverse splits are critical. I know a lot of retail shareholders are just kind of skeptical about reverse splits, but they're absolutely critical because one, it cleans up their cap table and will allow for new capital infusions, and two, it'll help uh, adhere to like uplisting requirements. Those uplisting requirements are going to lead to clean capital. Almost always, that clean capital is going to lead to increased revenues. That increased revenue is going to lead to shareholder value. It's it's you know you could you could simplify it 
it, you really could simplify it just like that. Right. And leave it to us to handle all the complicated stuff, right? Arguing with people, settling well, debt. Well, of course, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna call you, right? We're going to call myself. More or less, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, Uplist thing is, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I almost didn't. And I would have gotten in trouble if I didn't. You, you'd have gotten in trouble. Yeah, it would have been a bad day. No, what <laughs> would have happened was we were going to have round two. And I can guarantee <laughs> you we are going Let's, to have to have more and more conversations because there yeah. are still phenomenal questions in the queue right now, but I want to be cognizant of your time. And, and again, folks, this is the content that was asked by the community. I'm bringing the content to you with the experts and the subject matter uh, perspectives that, that matter and that resonate who are, who are there on the front lines. I, I want to continue to bring this type of content to you. Uh, I want to continue to have these types of discussions with folks like us and folks like some of the other organizations that I, that I know are in the, in the comments right now. So appreciate them for, for being here. And I won't call them out by name, but thank you for, for being here. Um, Gus, again, real quick, just how do folks get in contact with you? And again, I, I know I've got your Twitter handle on the screen there, but uh, let, let's end with that perspective. Yeah. Um, so thanks again, James, for having me. I had a great conversation. I can't believe it's already past eight o'clock and um, we still have so much to talk about. I would yeah. absolutely be into you know doing this again sometime in the future. Um, but you know, best way to contact me is I mean, Twitter is pretty good. Email is probably the best way. It's Gus at the Basile Law Firm.com. It was Gus at the Basile Law Firm.com. Um, Email, call us, um, ask for me. Uh, usually pretty available. I respond to DMs. I'm pretty active on Twitter. I try and stay active, try and update update uh, everybody on, you know, what's going on because, you know, especially now where we have, you know, decisions coming down every couple of weeks. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm generally pretty reachable. Awesome. Awesome. Gus, I appreciate you, man. We will stay in touch. I'm going to talk to you real quick in the, in the after show as well so we can talk about round two, so we can talk about some of that premium in-depth conversation that that a lot of the the community wants to have as well man outside of that folks be good to yourself and gus take care man i appreciate you again thanks take it easy